Well, we're going to be looking at the second half, the second section of Hebrews chapter 10, and this reminds me the kids are dismissed or running laps. Well, the great, royal, magnificent, high priesthood of Jesus is kind of wrapped up in uh, Hebrews at this point. Uh, that really was, I, I, it struck me last week uh, how that was foundational to at least my celebration of uh, Holy Week. Uh, the glorious accomplishment of redemption is described uh, from this interesting perspective of the high priesthood of Jesus in the center uh, of the book of Hebrews. Um, and, and what Hebrews alerts us to is that it wasn't simply that Jesus died on a cross. Uh, it wasn't simply that it was a substitutionary atonement. Uh, but really what was taking place was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament law commanded. Uh, that Jesus entered the most holy place, the true holy place, of which the physical temple is only a facsimile. He entered the true holy place to enact a perfect sacrifice. And we saw through the middle of the letter that the priesthood of Jesus is the core uh, of the writer's concern. That was fed principally by two Old Testament verses, Psalm 110 and Jeremiah 31, uh, with backup in Genesis 13 and Psalm 40. But all of these passages of Scripture, these themes coming to bear and explaining those texts, uh, the writer, the preacher, um, uh, speaks of things that are unavailable to human senses, that there was more going on uh, than met the eye. It talks about what Jesus accomplished, what He did uh, in the heavenly places. And as a result, the sacrificial system was wiped out uh, because Jesus replaced it with His own consecrated life. Uh, and Jesus is being described here in the book of Hebrews uh, and, and in the rest of this letter in exceedingly great terms. Uh, I'm, I'm going to remember next Christmas, uh, Psalm 40, uh, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That's a good way to reflect on the baby in the manger. Uh, and this, the writer says, is the reality rather than the facsimile, the substance rather than the shadow. Uh, one of the sermons that I read on Hebrews this week, uh, the, the, the pastor gave the illustration, what, it would, what would it be like if I began to cherish a photo of my wife rather than her actual physical presence. That would be uh, a little bit weird. Uh, but that's exactly what's being described here, is that the, the people in the, to whom this letter is being written are, in a sense, preferring the facsimile uh, to the real thing. So because Jesus did that, His enemies were made a footstool for His feet, and God can forgive sins definitively and, and eternally uh, once for all. Uh, for all time. Now, that being put on display, that being described in, in considerable detail, uh, has implications for our lives. It can't help but have implications for our lives. So, just like most of the letters in the New Testament, a corner is turned, and that corner is being turned right here to reflect on the implications for our lives of what Jesus has done uh, on the cross and in the heavenly places. So let's read uh, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19 uh, to the end of the chapter. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay." But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the Word of God. So, what I want to talk about is the call as a result of Jesus' high priesthood, the call and as a result of Jesus' high priesthood, the warning, and as a result of Jesus' high priesthood, the remembrance. Uh, So because Jesus has accomplished this work, because He has done, because He is seated at the right hand of His Father, there having all of His enemies being made a footstool for His feet, because of that, uh, first there is this call. Since Jesus is an exceedingly great high priest, we have confidence Now, that's the word that ought to be underscored. That's the word that you ought to think about as you begin to read this passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus. Now, that is worth a lot of reflection, a lot of contemplation, and maybe the pregnant question could be posed to you, do you have confidence? Do you have confidence to enter the the most holy place, enter the place where Jesus is? He says, since we have this confidence, and he's going to give us three implications, three things that he says, let us do these things, 
because we have confidence. But that confidence is something that wanes. It's something that nobody holds on to for very long. Uh, But when you do have it, you need to hang on to it for all your worth. And when you lack it, you need to recapture it. I was listening, uh, I I don't know why I had some hymns on my uh, car radio this week. And uh, and the, and the hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, came up. And I don't know if you remember that hymn. Uh, but the lyric of it is riveting. It's Charles Wesley at his best. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. And the last verse of that song uh, says, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. You remember the next part of that? With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Uh, Wesley, again, a guy who is just like you and me, had good days and bad days. On a good day, wrote this hymn. And he talked about his confidence in entering uh, the presence of God. That amounts to assurance, and, and here it's very important to see that assurance doesn't derive from an upright life. Assurance derives from Jesus enthroned in heaven. Assurance is a, is a tricky topic. Uh, it's one that we probably ought to think about uh, with a little bit more energy, given that our confession has an entire chapter on the topic. I think it's alone among the Reformed confessions to have that chapter. But the assurance of faith, the confidence of entering the presence of Christ, rests not on your having had a good week, it rests not on your having avoided your favorite sins, it certainly does not rest on any sense that you might have of having avoided sin. I've I've met people before that said, you know, as far as I know, I'm rid of all known sin. And that's a dangerous place to be. But your assurance doesn't rest on that. It rests on the fact that Jesus is enthroned in heaven. Ordinarily, we tend to gravitate toward the sense that assurance derives from an upright life, that assurance derives from good doctrine, that assurance derives from having love uh, for one another. And, And sometimes it does, but on a bad day, on a bad day, your conscience is tearing you apart On a bad day, you don't have much love for the brothers around you. On a bad day, your theology is kind of shaky. But you can still be assured because Jesus is enthroned in heaven. That's the objective reality. That's what we pay attention to. My God is reconciled. So, out of that assurance, out of that confidence, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Because of that, the writer says, let us do three things. First, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I think what is in view here, let us draw near, is not um, primarily a private exercise, but rather worship is in view. That's what the writer is telling them to do. Let's get together and let's worship. And not worship as being entertained, not worship as a mindless engagement in ritual, but worship with a true heart and full-orbed worship. Uh, One of the little 
petty distractions that I have in my life is when folks con- consider these days worship to be merely singing. Uh, there was a, a little school that met at the church where I was an interim in South Carolina, and they said, oh, now we're going to have a time of worship. And what they did is they gathered all the kids together and they sang songs. And, uh, and I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to think that that's unimportant, but th- there's so much more to worship than that. When, when the writer is saying, let us draw near, he has in view not just singing, but praying and confession and reciting and giving and listening and responding and eating and drinking. Let's draw near because Jesus is seated on his throne, because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Secondly, he says, let us hold fast. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We're holding fast to the greatness of Jesus. And the implication of this is that there is no compromise. There's no syncretism. There's no waffling. There's no other Savior. There's nothing else that can define your life. There's nothing else that can save you. There's nothing else by which you can um, rest content and have a, a, a ground from which to live the rest of your life. The only rock, the only foundation is Jesus. Let's hold fast to that. It's hard for us to understand the integrity of conviction. It's legal in the United States to hold this conviction. You understand the integrity of conviction when you note places where it's illegal, where it's impermissible, where your life is on the line. To those people, the writer says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And then lastly, he says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the third thing, not only let us draw near, let us ask, but let us uh, consider how we can encourage each other. Uh, the picture there is fellowship, clearly. Uh, these folks had gotten into a rough spot where they were unwilling to meet together. They were unwilling to be seen with each other. Things were getting hot for them, and they were willing to shy away from all of that and get back to a place where it is safe. Uh, this is about meaningful community. It's about meaningful fellowship. It's about being with people, encouraging them according to the need. All the more, he says, as you see, the day is near. It's meaningful community that is intense at times. It's thoughtful. It's active. It's loving. It's obedient. We need each other, right? We need each other. Uh, I, I can't do this by myself. Neither can you. In fact, it's even hard for two or three to do it. We need each other. So, the writer says, in light of the fact that Jesus has accomplished this redemption, let's draw near, let's hold fast, and let's consider how to encourage one another meeting together. And then he moves into the second section that is a dire warning. He says that, the, you know, the way faith is described is the way that we, have, uh, that, that, uh, we draw near to each other, the way that we consider how to encourage each other, the way that we hold fast to our profession, that, that that's, that's what faith looks like. It is worshiping. It's exercising tenacity of conviction. It's loving one another and encouraging good deeds. And this is the natural, expected, consequential outcome 
of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what happens. That's what happens when people take it to heart. Anything less is false and needs remedy. And that's why he issues this strenuous warning in verses 26 to 31. It's really a reiteration of a warning that uh, took place in chapters 5, the end of chapter 5, second half of chapter 5, up into chapter 6. He says, if we, don't go, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there's no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, <clears throat> I know where your mind goes with that. My mind goes there too. Uh, this is not uh, talking about repetitive bad behavior. Uh, if that's what it was talking about, we'd all be in a world of hurt, wouldn't we? Uh, either that or we would have to start uh, living in denial. Uh, that, that is often the safe haven of uh, many who get caught up in this. But that's not what it's talking about. It's, sinning deliberately doesn't refer to rep- repetitive bad behavior. It refers to walking away from the faith. It refers to the opposite of what's ju- just been described, of not drawing near, of not holding fast, and of not considering how to encourage uh, love and good deeds. It's walking away from worship, it's mixing Jesus with other saviors, and it's keeping to yourself. That's what sinning deliberately means. And the warning, again, is amazingly strenuous. There no longer remains any sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Fearful expectation, fury of fire, profaning the covenant, outraging the Spirit is what's being described here. And you, you kind of want to take a step back and say, that's a lot more strenuous than I'm used to hearing. What I'm used to hearing is something that's more gentle, that's more, come on, let's, let's walk this path around the shoulders, uh, con- con- comforting. Uh, the writer skips past that, and I want us to understand why. Um, You know, the gospel doesn't really make sense, or at least it doesn't have its proper gravity without a warning like this, because the gospel is not first about its correlative benefits. It's not first about peace of mind, reconciled friendships, clarity of thought, psychological wholeness. All of those things are promised to us in gospel appeals. If you will come to Jesus, it will be good for you. If you come to Jesus, you will have good things happen in your life. If you come to Jesus, you will have peace of mind. Now, all of those things are true, but they're not primary. Primarily what the gospel is, it's about being rescued from God's judgment. That's the primary focus of what is happening in the gospel, and it's very hard for us in the 21st century and 21st century Western evangelicalism to understand that. But thankfully, this passage pulls, it, pulls us back to it. And shying away from the intensity of these descriptions, the intensity of these descriptions uh, is one of the ways in which we don't hold fast to the confession of our faith. That this is, this is how serious it is. Now again, you know, when you read passages about judgment, about the fury of fire. You want to take the whole Scripture into account. We want to take the Bible on its own terms. God is not a cranky, omnipotent deity exacting His petulant rage on uh, the ignorant and unlearned. That's not what's going on, not at all. In fact, these folks are, are being described as those who have received the knowledge of the truth. 
The truth of Jesus is a perfect sacrifice. The truth of Jesus having absorbed his Father's wrath. The truth of Jesus being perfectly moral, perfectly loving. I don't know why the mic keeps clipping out, but there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, But they embraced the truth of Christ. And now they're turning away. And, uh, And the writer says, let's think about what we know. Let's think about the actual ramifications of what you're doing. Now, I think we ought to also be honest and say that um, there is a seed of the kind of unbelief that would drive us from Christ in every one of us. And it needs to be resisted, it needs to be overcome, and that's why we need each other. It's a ready temptation all the time that this isn't true. Uh, even more pervasive is the ready temptation to believe the accusation of the devil uh, when he casts aspersion on the love of God, when he, he, when he says, you better get your act together before God will deign to show you any affection or answer your prayers. That has to be resisted. And when you think about the fury of fire and you think about the judgment and you see the threat that's here, Your mind has to make a beeline to the fact of what Jesus himself suffered on the cross. Jesus suffered the fury of fire. He suffered the rejection. He endured all of that and worse because of his innocence, because of this principle that sin gets punished. Every sin is going to receive its due punishment. It's either going to get punished in Jesus when you put your faith in him and attach yourself to him and unite yourself to him, or you absorb it yourself. That's that's the heart of the gospel. And that might be kind of hard language, but it's true. And in fact, you begin to see the the love of God uh, exemplified in a much more expansive way when you understand that that's what's taking place. And again, the greatness of Christ is the backdrop to the severity of the warning. If Jesus were a small figure, one of several religious and philosophical influencers, then the judgment described would be severe, and it would be an overstatement. But if he's seated at the right hand of the Father, if in fact all of his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet, uh, if, if in fact he enacted a perfect sacrifice, then realistically, what are the ramifications of walking away from that? Now, the amazing thing about this is the strenuousness and the way it concludes, the Lord will judge his people, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I could become Jonathan Edwards and start, you know, talking about the spider hanging over the fire. And it would be true. But this writer swings almost violently. But I have much better hopes for you guys, is what he says. I have much better hopes, and I want you to remember. They had some glorious memories. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. They 
jumped in and endured the suffering of others willingly, energetically. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Think about that. Joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And we get into some vivid examples of that in the next chapter, next week. But he's asking them to remember. And I think it's important (laughs) that we understand that this is not nostalgia. Uh, I'm a firm convinced that nostalgia is an enemy of the truth. Nostalgia distorts the past uh, so that it all looks kind of rosy and so that it all looks kind of wonderful. And we think about the past and, and we think about the good old days and we think about things were a lot better back then compared to the way they are now. Uh, that, I can talk to you at length about this another time and personally, but that's simply not true. It is simply not true. And what the writer here is saying is that what you remember is the way that God sustains you. What you remember is the way that God was faithful even through uh, what were for you at that time the most difficult uh, suffering that you'd had to endure. There was a time when their sufferings were endured and their concern for others outweighed self-protection. They were partners with those who were so treated. They joyfully accepted the plundering of the property. And as a result, this preacher, this writer, has high hopes for them. He says, I know you can make it. Don't give in. Don't go back. You can endure. You just need a bigger and bigger picture of Jesus. You need to remember and have a bolder and brighter and more expansive understanding of what it is that he accomplished uh, when he went to the cross a greater and deeper understanding and experience of his power and goodness. And you won't know that unless you invest yourself in it, unless you step into it, unless you recover that sense of being a sinner in need of a Savior. He said, if you understand that, you will understand Jesus in much, much larger terms. And you can endure And this is reflective of what was said in that earlier chapter, and I want to keep going back to it, and I think we're even going to sing a song at the end of the service, but I don't know if I mentioned to you, but T and I were trying to figure out if this is the furthest that we've ever lived from a coast. Uh, It's the furthest in a long time that we've ever lived from a coast. And living in a maritime community, you get to see certain artifacts. In Charlestown, Massachusetts, there is an area of shopping and restaurants and offices, and they call it the anchor. And that's because in the middle of it, they have this old, old, old anchor. And one of the remarkable things about this, being in a city like Boston, is it's not nailed down. It's not bolted to the ground because nobody could move it. It's an immovable anchor that sits in the middle of this thing. And it would be good... If, if some wag would stick up the Bible verse next to it, we have an anchor in heaven. A sure and steady anchor is what the song says. Because of that anchor, the writer says, you can endure, you can do this. There is no difficulty that you can't find your way out of. There is no, we're going to get to this in chapter 12, 
there's no suffering that won't end up providing for your sanctification. There's no difficulty that you will have to endure that doesn't have God's fatherly hand on it in order to conform you to the image of Jesus. You can do it, is what he's saying. Let's pray.